Hello and welcome again today to another podcast in the Christian Life Issues for Today series of podcasts. Today we'll be talking about a very common issue that many people face. Often I've heard people say, or perhaps uh, you've personally said it, as on occasion I have as well, ask the question, why me? Well, how often have we asked this question or at least been tempted to ask it? In the midst of difficulty, why is this happening to me? Why is God doing this to me? What did I do to deserve this? Though we may not express questions like that out loud, many of us have asked these questions in our hearts. The temptation to feel sorry for ourselves is a common problem among Christians and non-Christians alike. As a biblical counselor, I hear people ask these questions many times. For example, a woman came to me and asked for help in coping with her troubled children. Her children refused to listen to her. They mocked and cursed her. They threw stones at the neighbor's houses, and the neighbors complained to the police. She looked at me and she said, why me? A young lady came asking that similar question as uh, she noticed that her married and engaged friends were experiencing times of pleasantry and delight. And she said, why me? Why don't I have a boyfriend? Why don't I have a husband? Sometimes people wonder why academics are such a struggle for them. Why do others learn so easily? And I have such a great difficulty. Some employees wonder why, after decades of service to one company, They're the first to be laid off when tough times come for that business. Some dieters wonder why they're struggling with their weight, while others don't struggle with their weight. Some people wonder why a loved one, a parent, a spouse, a child, is taken from them at what seems a premature age. Indeed, the circumstances that lead us to ask the why we question are almost endless. Similarly, the Bible indicates that many men of God struggled with the problem of feeling sorry for themselves. Moses, in the book of Exodus, for example, tells us about one of those times in chapter 5, when God sent Moses to Pharaoh to ask him to let the Israelites go into the desert to celebrate a feast for him. Pharaoh responded by increasing the Israelites' workload since they apparently had too much time in their hands and wanted to go off someplace to uh, celebrate. He thought they had too much time in their hands if they were asking to have a feast in the wilderness. 
This, of course, greatly upset the Israelites, who became quite angry with Moses for increasing their already difficult labor. They said to Moses and Aaron, who was uh, a leader along with Moses, May the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. That's Exodus chapter 5 and verse 21. Moses' immediate reaction to this was self-pity. We read, then, the Mo- then Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought harm to your people? Why did you ever send me? Elijah asked nearly the same thing of God in 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah had been sent by God to live by the brook Cherith, where he was fed by ravens, 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. There was a drought in the land, and eventually the little stream that God had provided for Elijah dried up. God then sent him to live with a poor widow in Sidon. After living with her for a while, he was sent by God to rebuke Ahab, Jezebel, and the priests of Baal for their idolatry. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah called down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice and to demonstrate God's power over the impotence of Baal. Despite the impressive show, Ahab and Jezebel were unmoved and threatened Elijah with his life. Elijah ran into the wilderness, collapsed under a juniper tree, and cried out to God, It's enough now, O Lord! Take my life, for I'm not better than my father's. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4. In other words, why me? Frequently the writers of Psalms asked the question, why me? In Psalm 73, we have one of those Psalms. And I believe that this particular Psalm is especially instructive because not only does it allow a man or tell us about a man who is struggling with self-pity, it also reveals the solution that this man found for dealing with his self-pity. God has a solution for the problem of self-pity, just as he does for all our other problems. And this psalm reveals that solution to us. Psalm 73 begins with these words, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Whether this man was experiencing physical and spiritual weakness or just speaking metaphorically about his spiritual weakness, we're not told. But he was in trouble either way, either spiritual weakness or physical weakness. Later in that particular psalm, the psalmist reveals his self-pity in his heart. He says, surely in vain 
I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. That's Psalm 73, verses 13 and 14. This man was clearly feeling sorry for himself. And thus he spoke these words. And along with those words, he describes his eventual restoration. These are all included in the word of God for our instruction. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11 has the Apostle Paul writing, Now these things happen to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. I believe that this psalm, Psalm 73, was included in Scripture to teach us how to deal rightly with the problem of self-pity, with the why me problem. All Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, says 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. And that's certainly true of Psalm 73. It's important to note, however, before we begin to look at God's solution, that the problem of self-pity cannot be dealt with directly. In other words, God does not want us to deal with this problem by attempting to actually answer the question, why me? As we study this psalm, we won't find a, a list of reasons for our problems or an explanation of why we deserve whatever we're experiencing. Most secular counselors and some Christian counselors deal with self-pity in precisely that way. They attempt to help people understand the why of what's happening to them in the hope that this knowledge will then allow them to overcome their problems. For example, they believe that if people know why they are always angry, they can then overcome their anger. Or if they know why they're depressed, they can then overcome their depression. Unfortunately, knowing the reasons for our problems does not usually solve them. I once counseled a woman who had previously wasted thousands of dollars and several years on secular psychology counseling. Instead of getting better, she told me I'm a more intelligent, miserable person. Those were her exact words. I'm a more intelligent, miserable person. What she meant was that although she knew in some manner more about her problem, she was no closer to overcoming it than she ever was. On the basis of our sessions together, I would say that she was right. She was a truly miserable woman, and no one's attempt to explain to her why she was miserable had lessened her misery one bit. Not long ago, I counseled a man who began by saying to me, I've come because I want you to tell me why a certain thing has happened to me. After he explained what had happened to him, I replied, supposing I could tell you why it happened, how would that help you to deal with that what has happened to you? And I continued by explaining to him 
that knowing why something has happened in our lives does not change its reality, nor does it help us to deal with it. Instead of asking why, what we should be asking is, now that this has happened, how should I and can I, by God's grace, handle it? What should my response be to this situation? So together with this particular man, we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29, which says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. I said to this man, and he ought, what he ought to be concerned with was what God says about his situation and how God says he should respond to it. Only God knows the answer to all the whys of our lives. Proverbs 20 and verse 24 says, Man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? We're free to speculate on why things happen to us, but some of us will never ever know for sure why things happen unless God reveals his purpose to us in heaven. Someday in the future, rather than attempting to answer the unanswerable question, why me? While we're here on earth, we should be focusing instead on what God says in his word about responding to and handling our problems. That's exactly what happens with the self-pitying author of Psalm 73. As we study this psalm, we'll consider its teaching in two parts. First, we'll look at the description of the causes of self-pity, which are found in verses 2 through 14, of Psalm 73. Look at the cure for self-pity also that is later described in verses 15 to 28. In order to understand the problem of self-pity better, we'll look at the causes first and then the cure. The first contributing problem to the psalmist's self-pity is mentioned in verse 3. He says, I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This man was struggling with self-pity because of sinful envy. James chapter 3 and verse 16 warns, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Proverbs 14 and verse 30 teaches, A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. According to the word of God, envy is evil and causes destruction. Well, what is envy? Envy begins with a strong desire for what someone else has. For example, in Genesis chapter 30 and verse 1, it's recorded that Rachel was envious of her sister Leah because her sister Leah could have children and Rachel at that point was not having children. 
Rachel became jealous of her sister. And she said to Jacob, her husband, give me children or else I'm going to die. Her desire for a child had overwhelmed her heart to the point that she felt that she could stand it no longer and she would die if she didn't have some children. Envious people think that they deserve to have what someone else has, just as much or even more than the other person deserves to have it. That was how Rachel saw it when she didn't have a child and her sister did. And that was also how the psalmist saw it in Psalm 73. Consider his words in verse 3. He wrote, I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Then he goes on to describe how these people were proud, violent, mockers, irreligious, blasphemers, and wicked, as found in Psalm 73, verses 5 through 9. And he says, in spite of the fact that they were violent, mockers, irreligious, blasphemers, and wicked, they prosper. Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They have increased in wealth. And then in verse 13, he complains that all his righteousness has gotten him nothing. In addition to envy, I believe that the psalmist was struggling with self-pity because of his sinful exaggeration. He exaggerated the extent of his own problems, and he really exaggerated the prosperity of the wicked. In fact, three times in this psalm, he exaggerated the prosperity of the wicked. First, he claims, for there are no pains in their death. As a minister, I have been at the bedside of unsaved people as they were dying, and I can attest to the pain of death that I witnessed as they died. Well, the psalmist exaggerates again in the second part of verse 4. He says, and their body is fat. Later he adds that their eye bulges from fatness. That's verse 7. What he means is that they have more food than they can eat, but that it's not true of all unsaved people either, that they have everything that they want, but there are some who have much of what they would desire. There are many ungodly people in the world as well who are starving. So we can exaggerate the prosperity of other people and think that everybody is prospering when in reality there are many people in the world who are starving. There were starving ungodly people in Psalmist's day as well as in our day. He was exaggerating the prosperity of the wicked, their comfort in death and their excess of provisions. He was just pitying himself. He also minimized the extent to which they experienced difficulties in their lives. He said they are not in trouble as other men are. 
they are not plagued like mankind. In other words, he claimed that by his observation, the wicked people didn't have problems. As a biblical counselor who has worked with many people, believers and unbelievers, I can say with confidence that there is no one who does not have problems. In fact, many people have terrible problems. Well, not only did the psalmist exaggerate the prosperity and the ease of the wicked, he also exaggerated his own problems as well. He said, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. That's Psalm 73, verse 13. The words in vain mean for nothing. In other words, this man claimed that living for God had profited him nothing. That, of course, was a lie. He had received many blessings as a child of God. And he remembered and declared those blessings later in the same psalm. At this point, however, he was so overwhelmed by his self-pity that all his thoughts about his troubles had crowded out any thoughts about his blessings. In fact, in verse 14, he complains, I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Again, I believe that he was exaggerating his troubles because his self-pity had distorted his thinking. Exaggeration and distorted thinking are problems that are often accompany self-pity because a person who is focused on the question, why me, is clearly focused on self. And then there's a third reason why this man was exaggerating when he said that his confusion about the nature and source of true blessings was, um, it was wrong. He said, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But what he saw was not true prosperity. God promises in his word that his children will be prosperous and rich. Yes. For example, he does that in Psalm 1, verse 3, where he says of the godly person that he'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which holds his position. His leaf does not wither. He's firmly planted by streams of water. And in whatever he does, he prospers. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 similarly promises, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. The Bible promises both prosperity and riches to those who know God. And we know that God keeps his promises. So, if that's true, that God promises to make his people rich, why aren't we all driving Bentleys or Cadillacs or BMWs? Why aren't we all living in mansions? Why aren't we all dripping with gold and silver? 
I've counseled many people who have seriously wondered about questions like that and answers to those questions. They wondered because they misunderstood the nature of the prosperity and riches that God promises to those who love him. The writer of Psalm 73, likewise, misunderstood the nature of God's riches when he was jealous of the prosperity of the wicked. He demonstrated his misunderstanding by focusing on the fatness of the wicked. The Bible makes it clear that God's riches are not primarily material things. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 15, Jesus said, For what not even one has an abundance, one who has an abundance, does his life consist in his possessions? In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 26, Jesus asks, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Our relationship with Christ is far more valuable than all the money in the world because only that relationship can save us from eternal damnation. The person whose eternity is secure is rich indeed. Psalm 19 teaches that the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, the fear and judgments of the Lord are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. They're sweeter also than honey and the droppings of the honeycomb. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, we have the psalmist expressing the same thought. He says, Blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver, and her gain is better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand. Eternal life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her ways are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all those who hold her fast. God's prosperity and riches are his wisdom, his salvation, his forgiveness of sins, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the help to maintain peace and faith and trust in him and having joy in our hearts. They are, as Galatians 5 puts it, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, humility, goodness, and self-control. And these things are far more valuable than any earthly riches. In fact, than all earthly riches. And Godly surely keeps his promises and gives believers all these things if they will receive them.
and trust in him. The psalmist was feeling sorry for himself because he misunderstood the nature of God's prosperity. And then finally, this man was struggling with self-pity because of sinful fretting. Fretting is becoming so preoccupied with the problem that our thoughts about it consume nearly all of our thinking. In Psalm 37, God commands, fret not. Three times he does that in the first eight verses. In his word, God deals with the problem of fretting because so many of us are guilty of this sin. A woman once sat in my office and wept over something trivial that she had done to her son 30 years earlier. When her son became an Eagle Scout, she had planned a party to celebrate him becoming an Eagle Scout. And she had not thought to ask her son what kind, kind of party he wanted. She fretted over that mistake of not asking him what kind of party he wanted and other minor problems like it that happened over the years that followed. And she was constantly churning in her mind how she had not done everything for her children that she wanted to do for them, or at least that they wanted her to do for her. She thought they wanted her to do for her. People fret over big things and little things. But regardless of the size of the problem, fretting inhibits people from serving the Lord effectively because it completely distracts their minds from the things of the Lord and the riches they already have in Christ Jesus. The writer of Psalm 73 had his mind focused on the prosperity of the wicked and his own lack of what he thought was prosperity. And these thoughts consumed him, and he was therefore unable to think of anything else except, Why me?